Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 73, again, because I just lost it all and I'm doing it over again. (laughs) This time I have to talk to you about something actually kind of serious, and that is AAA. We're also going to talk about vinegar and should you use it for cleaning or not, a tale from the road involving a very strange dog, a product review of those batteries I bought a few episodes ago, and a place to visit that is a lock museum. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me once again. This all sounds very familiar to me because I just lost the entire episode as I went to save it and moved my mouse accidentally to no instead of yes. So you are getting to hear this only once, but know that I have recorded it twice. Such is life. Before we get into the meat of the episode here, I do have a few business items to take care of. First off, I need your help. I created my very first vlog. I hate that word. And I want you guys to watch it and tell me what to change, what not to change, what you liked and what you didn't like. And I especially want to encourage you to leave negative comments or at least give them to me somehow because... That's stuff I can learn from. It is called the Aurora Project Vlog, number one, and I will link to it in the show notes. And it it basically talks about all the stuff that happens while I'm visiting these auroras. Yes, the auroras are each going to have their own video. That's part of the thing. But there's stuff that goes on in the thousands of miles I'm driving in between these auroras. And some of it's pretty strange. And I'll give you a taste of that in today's tale from the road. So if you could take a look, I would really appreciate it. And I promise that I will never ask for subscribers or likes. I, I think that's done overdone so much that I think I'm less likely to subscribe if someone says, smash that like button and click subscribe and dingy the little belly. And yeah, no, I'm not going to do that stuff. But on my podcast, I will say, hey, check this out. Also, I want to point out that uh, we still have a Discord channel. I mean, it didn't go away or anything. Actually, it's been pretty busy lately. And it's become a resource for folks who are struggling with something in their van builds. And I think that is great. So know that you have a resource source, then it's almost real time that if you're in your van and working on an electrical problem or a plumbing problem or something like that, you can come to our Discord channel and say, hey, help, and whoever's around will jump in and try to help you. We have a few cases of that this past week, and I think some folks were helped, and I think that's a really good thing, and I want to encourage it, and the more people we get involved, the better that's going to be. So that is Built to Go, a Discord channel, and again, there's a link in the show notes, and there's always a link at builttogo.com. That's three T's, not, no, wait, that's two T's, not three, not one. Almost got that wrong, yikes. That said, let's get into the meat of this episode, and that is AAA, the American Automobile Association, which is similar to the CAA, which is the Canadian Automobile Association, and everything I'm saying here today is going to refer just to AAA, although I think things may be similar for the other organizations. And here's the issue. I have been promoting AAA for a while, and I've been a customer for years and years and years, and I haven't always been happy with them, but in general, it's a fairly cheap way to feel a little bit more confident on the road, knowing that you have a single phone number you can call if you get into trouble. They will come and tow you, or give you gas, or help you change your tire, or charge your battery, or whatever free. Basically, you're paying up front for this service. And I think that's great, especially for new folks in van life who have got a brand new van or maybe a very old van, and they're just not really sure about it. 
but we have a problem. I've been seeing more and more reports of people saying that they called AAA when they were stuck on the side of the road, and AAA found out that they had a converted camper van and said, no, no, we don't do those. No, we can't help you. And it makes me a little angry because you find this out after you've been paying them for years in some cases, and then, no, you get nothing. So I was paying close attention to everyone telling their stories about this, and it seemed like there was a pattern that they won't tow commercial vehicles. But I found out that that isn't true. I called them, and this is what they told me. They said, and I know this is going to be contradictory, they said that they will cover work vans and that they will cover camper vans. And if you have an RV plan, like the RV Plus program they have, they will cover RVs. That all sounds great, right? I mean, I got RV Plus just so they couldn't give me a hassle about the fact that my van was converted. The term commercial vehicle doesn't mean anything to them, according to Marco in my local regional AAA office. And I asked him to check my NV200 to see if that would be covered. They have a tool where they can type in the vehicle and see if it can be towed or not, which is great. I wish they would make that accessible to us so that we could use it before we gave them money. My NV200 in the U.S. is not only a cargo van, it is also a commercial vehicle because by some definitions, because it only has two seats in the front and an unfinished area in the back, that makes it a commercial vehicle. These definitions are strange and they, they're all over the place and a lot of people have run into problems with this because they can't get financing for a quote-unquote commercial vehicle, such as a ProMaster. And, and of course, if the vehicle had seats in it, then it would be fine. For example, if you get an Econoline 150 that has seats in the back, oh, well, then it's a station wagon. That's all fine. But if you get one that's just a cargo van, it's not, even though it's the same vehicle. And I thought maybe that's what AAA was getting at. But no, my vehicle that is a cargo van and a commercial van is covered by them. And I was like, okay, well, maybe there really isn't a problem here. And then the guy said, unless it has a ladder rack, we don't do that. Like, a ladder rack? What is a ladder rack? Is that a rack with a ladder on it? Because the rack on my van is just a normal roof rack, but it had a little stopper so you could put a ladder on it. But before I could even ask that question, he said, oh yeah, we, we don't do high tops either. So all you folks with high top camper vans, according to this guy, AAA will not tow you. And then he went on to say that they don't cover vehicles that have been modified. So I asked, well, what do you mean by modified? And he said, oh, you know, if they've jacked up the suspension or anything. <laughs> that cuts out a whole lot of van life people too. And then came the kicker. And those policies are only for this region. Those are the Chicagoland policies, although I assume it includes a big portion of the Midwest. I'm not really sure how they draw their lines. He said that if you go to California, they're a different club, and the clubs are operated kind of like franchises. They have different rules. And if you go to another club and call for service, they're going to follow their rules. So you may find yourself in a situation where your Midwest club would cover you for the tow and you wouldn't have to pay, but the California club won't, so you will have to pay. And the idea is that if you are from the Midwest and you break down in California, you call the number and they will send the tow truck, but you may have to pay for it. And then after you're towed, you get reimbursed by your local club, hopefully. Hopefully. 
I mean, you have to trust them an awful lot. Now, I did a bit more research and found out that part of this is because there have been a lot of quote-unquote problems with people living in vehicles in California, and AAA has been called to tow some vehicles that weren't safe to tow. If you've been following this problem at all, you know that there are very wealthy people complaining about people living in their vehicles, blocking their view, and not only that... There are places where people are living in vehicles that are completely unsafe and unsanitary, and it's, it's a big issue. I'm not denying there's an issue there. But AAA's way of fixing it, apparently, is to put in fine print that is basically letting them say no anytime they want according to the whims of that particular tow agency or tow truck driver. That's the best I can get from this. It's so arbitrary and so all over the place, and the guy I was talking to didn't seem really sure of what he was saying. So I asked if there was a way that we could be sure that our vehicles would be towed if we needed AAA. And he said he wasn't sure. They have a tool that they can use to look up towability of a vehicle, but that's not available to the public. So he said, I should call the 1-800 roadside assistance hotline and ask them. And I thought, well, I don't want to take up space if somebody's in a real emergency, but okay, this is good information. I'm going to share it with people. I will follow through and actually do that. And so I called the number and what I heard was a busy signal. So, basically, the bottom line of all this is, if you have AAA and you have a camper van that you converted yourself, you don't know if AAA is going to tow you or not. You can call them, you can ask if your vehicle is covered or not, but my feeling is is that it's going to be up to the minute whoever is towing you is going to decide, not them. And I find that unacceptable. Now, if you have an RV... If you have a Winnebago or a Class C or some sort of a van that was converted by a professional company that gives you the RV Industry Association stamp on the side, you are covered so long as you have the RV Plus coverage from AAA. I'm not too concerned about that. But for the rest of us, with our vans of quasi-legal status, I think AAA can just say no anytime they want. And that removes any sense of security that AAA gives me. So I haven't decided whether I'm going to keep my membership or not. They say they will cover my specific vehicle. And honestly, I since I have a stealth van, unless they're super astute or they care an awful lot, they may not even know that I've converted it. And I am probably going to be okay, but that doesn't mean you are. And I am not happy with that at all. So that's all I've got for you. I, I don't know what to tell you to do other than make sure that whoever you use as a roadside assistance service will tow your van. If you have a newer van, often it comes with roadside assistance from the manufacturer. Your insurance company can also add a rider for emergency coverage. And here's the deal there. Your insurance company knows your vehicle. They have your VIN. They know what that vehicle is. And if they're covering you for towing in your policy, you're going to have a much better case to say, look, you covered me, you have to pay for this towing. And the truth is that they're probably using the same services. It's not as though AAA has a fleet of tow trucks or your insurance company. They're simply going through a network, some sort of a dispatcher that is calling out the local tow companies. So your legal case is probably going to be better with the insurance company because they are much more regulated than, say, AAA. In the meantime, Try not to need a tow. (laughs) Keep your vehicle in good repair. And honestly, the big thing that people get towed for is wheels and tires. Once a year, 
Go ahead and mess around and change your tire just to do it. Seriously, you need to know how to do it to begin with. And if you do this once a year, you're going to find out if there are any problems, such as your lug wrench is missing or, uh-oh, I didn't know what that bolt was for in the back, so I covered it up with the floor, and now I've learned that it's to lower my spare tire. Or, <laughs> as this is the case in my van, the cage that holds the tire up is rubbing against the sidewalls and is eventually going to eat through them. I'm not exactly sure what I'd do to fix that, that's another project. Anyway, just know, and I'm sad to say this, but know that if you have a AAA membership, you do not necessarily have coverage. And it's better to worry about it now than when you're stuck on the side of the road with somebody in a tow truck saying they're not going to tow you. Tech Talk. Can you use vinegar for cleaning? I've seen a lot of people use a spray bottles of vinegar for cleaning, especially cleaning dishes. And the idea is that you save a whole lot of water and it's much easier to do. And vinegar is this wonderful stuff that disinfects everything and it cleans better than soap and it's natural. Uh, all right, let's back up a few steps here. First off, vinegar is natural. It's a, it's a waste product of certain microorganisms. But so what? Natural doesn't mean good. I will bang on this drum head forever. Natural doesn't mean good. If you see a product advertised as natural, I, that makes me wary that they're trying to manipulate me because natural doesn't mean anything. It's not a regulated term. And things that are natural aren't necessarily good for you, like arsenic or cancer or alligators that want to eat you. All completely natural, not good. That said, is vinegar useful? Well, yes, and no, it depends on what you're trying to do. Vinegar is great at some things. Now, vinegar is a weak acid. It's acetic acid. It has a low pH, so it's good for dissolving things. It's really good for cleaning windows and mirrors, for example, especially if you use newspaper, because newspaper is slightly abrasive. That works great. It can also be used to break up food particles on things. But what it isn't is a disinfectant. It is not good at disinfecting things. So if you're using vinegar to wipe down surfaces or clean your dishes, just know that it's really not killing all that many microbes. It will kill some, but not very many, and certainly nowhere near as many as good old dish soap. Dish soap kicks vinegar's butt when it comes to cleaning but you do need to use more water. So you say, well, I've used vinegar for years and I don't get sick. Well, there's a reason for that. It turns out that dirty dishes are not a common way to get foodborne illnesses, especially from frying pans, because if you think about it, the frying pan is sterilizing itself every time it's used. It's hot. It's too hot for anything to live through. So you can clean that with vinegar or water or muddy water. It doesn't really matter. You can go in a mud puddle and clean your frying pan. Once you heat it up, it's going to be sterilized. I'm not recommending that you do any of those things. So vinegar to clean a frying pan actually makes a lot of sense because it'll break up food and then it's clean. But vinegar is not very good at breaking up grease, and that is a problem with frying pans and also countertops. If you have a greasy countertop and you spray it with vinegar, it's not really going to break it down. And depending on what that countertop's made of, it could actually damage it. Vinegar damages rubber and stone surfaces. So if you put in a fancy granite countertop in your van, vinegar can actually harm it. It will make it dull over time. So it's not so great there. It's also not great for plastic. Getting grease off of plastic is very difficult and vinegar isn't really gonna help you do that. However, you're not gonna use just vinegar, you're gonna rub it with a towel, right? 
well, the rubbing with the towel can actually remove the grease. So, hey, you do what you want. I do not think you're going to get sick if you clean your dishes with vinegar. But know that vinegar isn't that great at cleaning dishes. It's not the ideal way. Bob Wells, who I'll mention later in this podcast, does it, has done it for years, and claims he's never gotten sick. That's great. But I know for a fact that washing dishes with soap and water is going to get them cleaner. I'll have a link to an article from Consumer Reports that has some pros and cons about using vinegar to clean things, as well as a list of things that you should never clean with vinegar because it will damage them. Tales from the Road. This is a tale from Aurora, Kentucky. And I have video of this tale in my latest vlog. So if you would take a look at that, I would appreciate it. And some of this really needs the visual element. But that said, let me tell you the story. Aurora, Kentucky is right on the banks of Kentucky Lake, which is a very large man-made lake created when the Tennessee Valley Authority flooded the river. And this is a story all over this region. There's all these man-made lakes created to prevent flooding. That's all fine and good. There's a very large bridge across this river. And side story, this bridge was hit by a ship carrying a rocket for NASA, and it ripped the bridge down. And if you're wondering why a ship carrying a rocket for NASA is in Kentucky, well, you're going to have to watch the YouTube video of Aurora, Kentucky, where I will explain it. But that's where this incident I'm about to tell you happened, was at that bridge. At the edge of the bridge, on the Aurora, Kentucky side of the bridge, there's a big parking lot, and people use that as a fishing parking area. Basically, you park there, and you can put your boat in the water and go fishing, or walk down some trails and go fishing, or whatever. And it's also a good hiking spot, too. There's trails, and then you can walk across the bridge as well. And I did that. I parked there to get some nice video of the bridge, and there was an historic sign to read. And I park, and as I'm walking towards the bridge, I notice a buggy. You know, like an Amish buggy, like one of those black four-wheeled horse-drawn carriage kind of buggies that you see in central Pennsylvania? Yeah, it was just there. Not that unusual, except there was no horse. It was just the buggy. And it was sitting on the grass next to the parking lot. And there was no one near it. And there was no one near it. It was all by itself. I noticed it had a pink cooler kind of attached to its bumper, which I thought was a little strange. And it didn't have a slow-moving vehicle sign like you see on the ones in Pennsylvania. But what it did have was a dog. Oh, it had a dog. This dog, well, this dog was sitting in the driver's seat completely still, as though it was hiding in the grass. Completely still. But as I walked by the carriage, its eyes followed me. Very slowly, it would twist its head and stare at me. Like one of those optical illusions of the dragon that follows you around the room, that's what this dog was doing. But it was no illusion. So I took note of this as I headed to the bridge and said, hmm, there's a dog sitting in that buggy, and there's no one around. Hmm. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going on, but I'm sure that dog won't be there when I get back. An hour later, I'm back, and the dog is sitting in exactly the same place, looking at me exactly the same way. And at this point, I'm having to wonder what the story is here. Did the horse become lame and have to be taken to a vet, and the owner left the buggy there with the dog to protect it? 
did maybe the owner unhook the horse and head off down a trail to go fishing? And maybe that's what the cooler's for. And again, he left the dog to protect it. I don't know. I don't really have a way of knowing what this story was. If you happen to have been in Aurora, Kentucky last week and you know what's going on, please let me know. Because all I'm left with is there was this dog sitting in a buggy for at least 90 minutes, just kind of staring at everybody in a very peculiar way. No barking, no wagging of tails, no panting, just a cold canine stare. Again, you want to see this. You want to see the video of this so you understand how odd it was. And that's why I do the vlog, because I want these little stories to get on YouTube <laughs> separate from the Aurora video content. Anyway, yeah. Product review. If you remember, a few episodes ago, I talked about these cheap power stations, <coughs> solar generators, that I bought on YouTube, and I bought a couple of them, and they've come, and I've had a chance to play with them. I haven't had a chance to do a really good test, but since these sales might be temporary, I thought I would tell you what I know now and let you make a decision. So I got a Wacomi 520 watt hour unit and an Awanfi 505 watt hour unit. So very, very similar. To translate watt hours, these are basically a 42 amp hour and a 40 amp hour battery. Basically. There's a bunch of different stuff they pull and how many volts they're measuring. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, just use those numbers to compare. They're basically the same. The Awanfi is about the size of a six-pack. It's very small. Maybe may a little taller than a six-pack, like maybe a six-pack of tall boys. It's a really nice size, and all the plugins, or at least most of them, are on the top, as are the buttons. This thing would be perfect to like, put behind the seat of a car, be really easy to get at, and it comes with all the cables you need to plug it into the cigarette lighter or to the household outlet, or if you happen to have solar panels, they just screw in. It comes with the right connectors for that. And it has even a built-in light, which everyone says, what do I need a light for in my battery? But then people end up using them all the time. So it's, it's awesome for that. I mean, this thing would be perfect if you needed to do a late night repair on something. It's everything you need except the tools. Now you might say, oh, 40 amp hours. Well, that's not very much. And you're right. But remember, we're dealing with lithium here. So you can safely go down to 32 or so amp hours and not damage the battery. Unlike AGM, where you could only go down half. And if that still doesn't sound like much, know that in my van, I have two 35 amp hour batteries which means I only have 35 amp hours that I can use because they're AGM, and I have never run out of power, ever. I'd never run out of power. I have 200 watts of solar on the roof, and I have a VSR alternator charging system, and I've never run out of power. So for me, I know this would be enough. The Wacomi is bigger. The battery is a little bigger, but the unit is much bigger. It's the size of a car battery, and it's, it's much bigger. And the way the controls are laid out, they're all on the front. So wherever you sit this thing, you're going to have to have access to the front of it. So it needs to sit on like a counter or the floor or something like that. And it seems like it's a decent unit too, but the Awanfi was so much cheaper and it's so much smaller that I'm really thinking that's the better deal. I mean, I only paid 236 bucks for this thing. Now, a couple of notes. The Awanfi does not have a USB-C charger. It only has USB-A, which is the normal type of chargers. But that doesn't matter because it's just a matter of the cable. It does, though, matter that the USB-C 
on the Wacomi is actually a high power USB-C. So if you're charging a laptop or an iPad, it's going to be better for that. Also, the inverters in these are not pure sign. They are modified sign. And that is not as good. While it's probably fine for most things, there are some things that don't like modified sine waves, such as a convection cooktop. Those need pure sign. They do weird things if they're not on pure sign. But again, these are little batteries. You're not going to be running a lot of AC stuff off of these. This is basically to run your lights and your fan and your water pump and your refrigerator, your 12 volt refrigerator. It would work fine for all of that stuff. So that's just my initial review of these things. Between the two right now, I like the Awanfi much better. The Wacomi is exactly the same as the Rockpals 500 from what I can tell, so compare it that way too. And I just wanted to get that word out while these sales were still going on. The last time I checked, the Awanfi had gone up a little bit in price, but if you're in the market for one of these things, now's a good time to be watching because something's going on and the prices are good. And if you have a no build or you're camping or you're car camping or you're not going to build a permanent system for whatever reason, or you want to back up, these might be a great solution. A place to visit. I ran across this place just by accident, and those are my favorite places to report about. It is called the Illinois Waterway Visitors Center. Very generic name. It's in Ottawa, Illinois, not very far from the Starved Rock State Park Visitor Center. Starved Rock is probably the most visited natural phenomena in Illinois, not counting Lake Michigan, because it's fairly close to Chicago. And if you happen to be going there, take an hour or two and go across the river to the Illinois Waterway Visitor Center. You will find a big parking lot and then you will find a building that has dioramas and explanations of how the river works and the lock system on the river works. The Illinois River has lots of locks. What the building is, is sort of lock traffic control, like an air traffic control, but for the locks. And they just have a place for people to visit down at the bottom. But the best reason to visit this place isn't for all the dioramas and stuff. I mean, you can figure all that stuff out on the internet. It's that you actually get to see the locks work. And it's not as simple as you might think. Big, big barges come down the river and they get to the lock. And the barges are in these trains. And the trains are much, much longer than the lock. So they are taken apart, pushed into the lock. The water is raised or lowered, depending on which way they're going. And then they have to be reassembled on the other side. And basically, there's one guy doing this. It's really interesting to watch. Also, this river is infested with those crazy Asian jumping cart, those fish that like jump in boats. You've probably seen videos of this. This river's got them in spades. So if you see boats coming up and down in their wake, you'll see these really big, like 20 pound fish leaping in the air. And that's fun too. It's also a great spot for viewing American bald eagles. So I like to promote these little spots that you may not have heard of. This one is great. It's, it's just a very pleasant, interesting place to go. It's very quiet. There won't be big crowds. And you'll learn something about how our river systems work and how our transportation network uses these rivers to get bulk cargoes to where they need to go. Resource Recommendation I have a new appreciation for Bob Wells. If you're one of the six people on the planet who doesn't know who Bob Wells is, he is the founder of CheapRVLiving.com and the associated YouTube channel where he has become quite famous and uh, actually makes a lot of money, and I'll talk about that in a second. He was also in the movie Nomadland, so he is technically part of an Academy Award winner. 
And he was Bob in Nomadland because he wasn't actually acting. He was just being himself. He was the founder of the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. It still is. Bob has been living in a van or a box truck for decades. He knows how to do it. And his approach is very specific. He is not interested in your Instagram videos. He is not interested in your $50,000 conversion where you have the foot massager and the heated floors and the automatic projector screen that goes up and down. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. But that's not what he's focusing on. He is focusing on people living as cheaply as possible in vehicles. To him, it's a calling because he sees society as more or less collapsing. He is an ideological person in that regard. Whether you share that ideology or not is not important because he is a great resource for how to live in any vehicle as cheaply, effectively, and comfortably as possible. And I think everybody involved in van life should at least give some of his videos a watch. I have found him to be very honest, and the few things I've disagreed with him on were either because of my ignorance or because he didn't have enough data. I've actually seen him change his mind on things as he got more data. And to me, that is the key to honesty, being willing to change your mind. So that's covered. As for him making a lot of money on YouTube, if you know enough about YouTube, you can actually do math and kind of figure out how much people make, and he's doing quite well. But what he's doing with the money is very interesting. He's created a nonprofit. At least most of that money is being funded towards this nonprofit that helps people get into vehicles for living in. People who have life situations that make them extremely vulnerable, Bob's organization will help them get into a vehicle where they have some measure of security, safety, and dignity. And how do we know he's not just like getting all this money and getting rich and stuff? Well, if he is, he's not spending it on himself because he lives in a van. And we know this because he's constantly surrounded by other van life people, and they see he lives in a Chevy van. So what's he doing with the money? He's either doing what he says or something we can't see. Anyway, if you are not familiar with CheapRVLiving.com, absolutely check out the YouTube channel and check out the website because he's a bit old school, and most of the action actually happens on the forums on CheapRVLiving.com. I'll have a link in the show notes, but hey, you know how to find it. It's CheapRVLiving.com. The Aurora Project, an update. So I just visited Aurora, Kentucky, Aurora, Texas, and Aurora, Missouri. Got great video, and more importantly, got great stories. Each one of these places has a really interesting story to tell, and I will be doing that in the podcast from time to time and in videos as well. And it's interesting doing research for these places. I, I don't just go there and look around and say, oh, this is Aurora whatever. I research its history. I try to figure out why it's there, why it was named Aurora in the first place, and what major events of history have happened there. And uh, the first one I visited is a tricky one. Aurora, Kentucky. No one really knows where it came from. <laughs> I mean, European settlers have lived there since the early 1800s, and apparently it was basically a ferry crossing for the river, and there were a few houses and businesses there, but never any growing concern. And then later on it was founded and they put in a post office, but it's always been this kind of sleepy little town. No one knows why it was named Aurora, 
And uh, then the lake was created when they flooded the river, and it became kind of a recreation area pit stop. You would go there to get your worms and to fuel up your boat and all that kind of a thing, and that's still what it's used for today. But it does have this one really interesting piece of history, and this is going to be the crux of the video for Aurora, Kentucky, and I'll, I'll tell you about it here. At this place called Cherokee State Park. I don't know why they called it Cherokee. It has nothing to do with Cherokee Indians, but it does have to do with Jim Crow and black people. If you remember way back, there was this principle of separate but equal. This was not the proudest moment in American history, but the idea was that black and white people can't live together, so we have to keep them separate, but we need to give them equal facilities. And we know in practice that just didn't happen. But they did an experiment here in Aurora, Kentucky, where the Tennessee Valley Association, who had taken immense swaths of land by eminent domain, set aside 18 acres and said, hey, Kentucky, you can have these 18 acres if you set up a park here, a resort, just for black people. And if you can keep that going for a number of years, we will give it to you. And Kentucky was like, well, hey, it's free land. And they did. They set up this black-only resort. And by all reports, it was wonderful. Really, people loved it. People came from all over to go check out this black resort. And I even have a postcard from it that I think is pretty cool. Again, this will all be in the video. So what happened? Where did it go? And isn't this quote-unquote reverse racism? Well, no, it can take your reverse racism argument and put that away because what this was was trying to actually live to the letter of this policy of separate but equal. And it approached it because across the lake there was another resort that was just for white people. And by all reports, it was very, very nice and actually much nicer than this Cherokee State Park very nice resort. So what happened? In a, in a cruel twist of fate, the Civil Rights Act happened and the separate but equal policy was thrown away. You couldn't have a blacks-only resort because you couldn't have a whites-only resort. So the state came in, closed Cherokee State Park, took all the cottages away, and put them in what was formerly the whites-only park. And their thinking is, well, since everybody can come here, we don't need that park, and we'll just take the stuff from here and move it over there. Which sounds great in paper, but as you can imagine, the black folks who had felt incredibly welcome and comfortable at Cherokee State Park no longer felt comfortable going to the formerly whites-only park. So today, there just isn't much there. There's one big building left that was the dining hall, and you can see remnants of what used to be this wonderful resort. And there are plans to revitalize it in the future. But it's just a really interesting little tidbit of history that what if the Civil Rights Act hadn't happened? You know, what would it be like today? I don't know, and I'm not sure I want to. Next week, we'll talk about Texas, which has its own absolutely bizarre history. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 73. I absolutely appreciate all the support from everyone, and we have well surpassed 50,000 downloads now, which doesn't make us a huge podcast by any means, but does measure some level of success, and I thank you for that. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this quote, inspired by the fact that I've had to record this podcast twice, by Tom Watson, the CEO of IBM. If you want to succeed, double your failure rate.